This past Thursday evening, like many of you, I presume, I found myself in front of the TV, waiting for that final presidential debate to begin. I like to watch the debates on C-SPAN, so you don't get all those commentators and those annoying quotes keep flashing up on the screen. I really wanted to focus on what the candidates are trying to say. And perhaps, like you, I found myself a little anxious to see what the debate was going to be like. How long do you think it's going to be before this whole thing goes off the tracks, I asked Jeannie. But perhaps, like you, I was actually a little bit surprised that it actually turned out to be a pretty decent debate, all things considered. For once, even in spite of all the personal slandering back and forth, I feel like we might have gotten to hear some things we actually needed to hear. And it was a refreshing change from what has become the unfortunate normal in politics in America. Rather than focusing on the issues that truly concern our country, it seems that most candidates for political office these days are only concerned with trying to trap or trick or outsmart their opponent. Instead of answering the moderator's questions with truth and with substance, all we usually get for a response from any candidate is some sort of one-liner or some catchphrase that might look good on a bumper sticker. As the debates this week unfolded, I could not help but think about how these leaders in our country today related to the leaders we've been hearing about these past weeks in our Sunday morning gospel readings. It seems that even 2,000 years ago, People who had power and control, when they were threatened with the prospect of losing that power and control, resorted to trying to trip up or cause their opponent to somehow incriminate themselves. See, all through this 22nd chapter of St. Matthew's Gospel, Jesus is hotly debating the authorities of his day, and it really was not very pretty. The winner of these theological and philosophical arguments would gain power and influence, and the loser would face destruction and death. The scribes, the Sadducees, and the Pharisees, that grand trifecta of power, all joined forces in order to trip Jesus up, to make him look foolish, and to put an end to his growing popularity. It's actually pretty interesting that the issues they test Jesus with then are still the hotly debated issues today. Money, marriage, and the law. The scribes mounted that first attack by trying to get Jesus to make a stance for or against paying taxes. If Jesus said he approved of paying taxes, he would become the enemy of all the Jews. But if he said he was against paying taxes to the Romans, then the government authorities would be sure to get rid of him. But of course, Jesus sees their plot for what it is and responds as only he can. He holds up that golden coin and proclaims that what belongs to Caesar should go back to Caesar. But then he reminds them that even Caesar, in all of Caesar's treasure, belongs to God mm -hmm. as well. All that power and authority that that coin represents will never hold God's people captive. 
that God will always come first. The Sadducees then come into the picture, and they challenge Jesus by asking him, if a man marries and divorces many times while he's living, which wife will be his when he dies and goes to heaven? And that was a loaded question for any Hebrew scholar. They hoped that Jesus wouldn't be able to address those tricky <laughs> subjects of the marriage, the difficult questions about divorce, and the forbidden subject of that time about resurrection. But again, Jesus delivers another response that shuts down their questioning. He reminds them that everyone, husbands, wives, everyone, are all children of God. And that resurrection is best left up to God, not to us. Our true identity comes from God alone, not these labels that we humans try to put on each other. Finally, this morning, we hear the Pharisees, the holy and righteous ones. They bring on a lawyer to come challenge Jesus. And we know how things can get dangerous when a lawyer becomes involved. The question is simple. Which is the greatest commandment? Yet by daring to answer it, Jesus is entering into some very dangerous territory. It would be like somebody forcing you to take out an ad in the Decatur Daily, publicly stating who you were going to vote for for president, or what you think about the legalization of marijuana. But without blinking, Jesus quotes them Deuteronomy. Love your God with your whole heart, mind, and soul. You can hear the Pharisees laughing. Everybody knew that. That's the kind of answer they would get from a child. But then, Jesus adds another scripture from Leviticus, saying that we love God with our whole heart, mind, and soul by loving our neighbors as ourselves. It was pretty rare for these two to be put together like that. And by doing so, Jesus turns the whole world upside down. You see, the Pharisees loved checklists. For them, religion was about what you should do or what you could not do. For hundreds of years, Pharisees taught that the law, the Torah, is how you follow God. This law gave structure to their society, told them how to live, who they did business with, what they wore, what they ate, how they worshipped God. But in an instant, Jesus makes all of those 613 laws about purity, cleanliness, rituals, sacrifices, he makes all of that secondary. And Jesus has just pulled that privileged status out under the feet of the religious leaders because their very positions depended on that law. Jesus defiantly overturns their laws and demands that love take over instead. And when we hear the word love, sometimes we just think about Hallmark cards and pictures of cute puppies and cartoon couples on the covers. Think about flowers candlelit dinners, Valentine's Day. For us, love is a good, warm, fuzzy feeling where we all hold hands and are at peace with one another. 
But that's not really the love Jesus is talking about here. Love your God with your whole heart, mind, and soul, and love your neighbor as yourself. The love Jesus is talking about here is all about trust, loyalty, and enduring devotion. You may actually hate your neighbor, but you will still love them if you continue to act for their well-being, if you don't tell lies about them, if you refuse to cut off your relationship with them because of something they said or because of something they might have posted on Facebook. Teresa of Avila said, Let everyone understand that real love of God does not consist in tear shedding, nor in that sweetness and tenderness for which we usually long just because they console us, but in serving God in justice, fortitude of the soul, and humility. Did you notice that our gospel reading this morning ends with Jesus asking kind of a confusing question about whose family will produce the Messiah? Jesus asked this question to make a point that the Messiah will never be subject to the law that already exists, but instead will be the fulfillment of that law. But Jesus also asked this question in an attempt to keep that dialogue open with those who were questioning him and with those who were trying to destroy him. Jesus didn't debate in order to win, but to remain in relationship with everyone, even those who were out to kill him. Jesus may not have liked the scribes, the Sadducees, the Pharisees, but he will always love them. And Jesus will always love us. And we are called to do the same. To love everyone. Male, female, gay, straight, Republican, Democrat, Alabama fans, and Auburn fans. What is the greatest commandment then? As far as Jesus is concerned, the greatest commandment is to participate in a community where whoever you are, and in whatever position you find yourself, everyone is taken care of, and everyone is loved. That means 